are beginning a brand new series entitled Building God's Way, and we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. And some of you may say, Nehemiah, really? Again? I mean, I just taught it in 2007. Hey, how many people were here in 2007? Woo, come on. That's right, that's right, 2007. All right, that was a little while ago. Not all of you are remembering everything I said in 2007. But we're gonna do it again, right? Which means first time for most of you. I entitled today's message, When God Says Build. And here's my question to kick us off. What is your plan for spiritually becoming all that God has for you? What's your plan? I mean, we all want it, right? I mean, nobody's out there going, I do not want to be everything God made me for. Nobody's saying that. But what's your plan to get that done, right? Because here's the deal. We are to be people of intention. We should be people living on purpose. We are not accidental people. We are people that think through things and say, what does God want from me? And he throws out the plan and the agenda, and we kind of follow along in that. We don't just kind of drift through life and then hope someday we're spiritually mature. That's just not how it's going to work. If we're going to build God's way, then we need to decide that it's worth the effort. Here's a fill in the blank on that app, if you have it. If not, just write this down. No great work resulted from apathy. No great work resulted from apathy. What does apathy mean? Apathy means you don't care enough to bother doing anything. There was no great moment in history that begins with, and I was on the couch doing nothing when... Right? I mean, that's not how the story is ever written. It's about making sure that you are moving forward as God desires you to do. No great work has ever resulted from apathy. If we desire a renewed, vibrant, godly life, we got to really want it and we got to strategize to get it. So the, the book of Nehemiah tells the story of a guy who saw something wrong and wanted to do something about it. He wanted to fix it. It was impossible, but he wanted to make sure that it happened. Other people had tried and failed, but he still was going to try. We are going to do a seven-week series chronicling his story and then applying it to how it ties into ours. Now, whenever we do that, I have a caveat, I have a rule, right? Which is, we do context first, right? You don't just grab the Bible and try to make it mean anything you want it to mean. There are rules of literature and rules of genre and rules of interpretation. You can't just grab the Bible and grab something out and apply it to yourself. You gotta know what it meant. Remember the first rule of interpretation, there is one intended meaning by the author, but there are many multiple applications. And we're going to make this series very applicable, but I don't jump immediately there. So what that's going to require from you is that you hold two things simultaneously. One is a study in the book of Nehemiah, knowing what really happened. And then on the other side of your mind, I want you to put it into play for you. Hopefully you can do that along with me. Hopefully I'll be clear enough as we go along. The basics of understanding any book, when you walk into it, you gotta ask a couple basic questions. Who wrote it? Any guesses on who wrote Nehemiah? Oh, fantastic, well done. 
Yeah, these are very difficult challenges, okay? Uh, Nehemiah wrote it, uh, most scholars believe. Now, one thing I did find out that I didn't know before was that Origen, one of the church forefathers, considered Ezra and Nehemiah the same book, and he called it First Ezra and Second Ezra, which I thought was kind of interesting and fascinating. But they're super tied in because they're contemporaries. They lived at the same time, did similar stuff. They were around each other a lot. One was a priest. The other one was a cupbearer to the king. But they were both involved in the process. So it makes sense why they're tied in together. And yeah, there's some times in the book when it talks about Nehemiah in the third person and maybe an editor or an author kind of came in afterwards and cleaned it up. But in general, it is Nehemiah. When did he write it? We're going circa 440 B.C. That's almost 2,500 years ago. This is an ancient document, right? Why did he write it? Jews are passionate about a couple different pieces. One is their God, one is their people, and one is their land. So if you want to talk about the promised land, we're getting real serious. This story is about how they rebuilt the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem, which in Jewish history is so important. But there's a reason why they had to rebuild it, right? Something happened. So let me give you the historical background. Starting about 1100 BC, we ended up having a monarchy uh, uh, in Israel, right? I just started thinking of the Hamilton. Uh, okay, forget it. We're going to move on. I'm trying to remain focused. Don't distract me, Bruce. Here we go. That we had a monarchy and actually it kicked off with a king and the king was King Saul. After King Saul came King David, yeah. And then after him was his son Solomon. Well, Solomon, everything kind of started breaking down along in Solomon's reign, but out of a kindness and a promise, God held it together until basically Solomon's son came into play and the nation split into two. There was a north and a south. I know America can't understand that con. Oh, that's right. We had the civil war of north and south. All right. So they had a north and a south. The north, their kingdom uh, was centered around the capital of Samaria and they were known as Israel, and then south was known as Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. Well, they hated each other, and, and along the way, they both started breaking down and not following the Lord so significantly that God started throwing in warnings from all these prophets going, this is not going to go well, you need to stick with me, stick with me, stick with me. They ignored them, they killed them, all that stuff, and God allowed the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC, to come in and wipe out the north, pull them completely out of their land, and it backfilled with foreigners. South hung in there for a little while. In 586 BC, they too had to go. The Babylonian Empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who's famous in what book? Daniel, right? The book of Daniel. He came in, laid siege to Jerusalem, and wiped it out. And when I mean wiped it out, I mean real bad. Like tearing all the walls down, burning all the gates, everything was in shambles. And they were all pulled out of their land. Now, there was only a remnant left. There was only a small group of Jews. And they just had their little huts and their houses because there was no protection. You would get wiped out. They had to be somewhat nomadic. And it was a moment in history of devastation because remember the Jews are so passionate about their land and they were out of it. Well, 70 years later, 
a new king came into play because the Babylonians had been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And a new leader comes up, and his name is Cyrus. For whatever reason, and we know it due to prophecy, and that it was God's hand, he acknowledges that God is the God of heaven and earth and says the Jews can go home. That's intense. Why would a pagan king say that? Well, God moved upon him. And then the impossible happened. The Jews went home. They went home in three successive waves. The first one was through a governor or more of a politician, more of a kind of a military type leader. His name was Zerubbabel. Don't write that down. If your child is named that, you're a bad parent. Zerubbabel let everybody home. And when they got home, they just got home. There was nothing fancy there. They didn't rebuild anything. It was like, we're just home. Well, then 13 years later, Ezra's team comes in. Here's a priest. Ezra's a priest. And what, is, what are priests concerned about? The, the serving of God. So instead of building the city walls, he's like, who cares if we have a home or a wall? If we don't have God, we don't have anything. So when he leads them home, he's like, we got to rebuild the temple. And the temple they rebuilt was so weak and tiny in comparison to what used to be there, everybody was so sad. They were like, I'm kind of happy, kind of sad. I don't know what's going on, right? Well, now we have Nehemiah's team coming in. And that's where our story is going to begin, all right? So Rubbable's team, sorry, 80 years later was Ezra's team. 13 years later was Nehemiah's team. Got those times wrong. Why did all this happen? Because God said in Deuteronomy 28, you guys are not in this land because you're better than everyone else. You're in this land because I need to do a work. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use you as my people group to tell the world about me. That means you don't get to do whatever you want. You're going to do what I ask you to do. There will be blessings that come with that. If you do what I command you to do, you're going to see my hand move for you like never before. You will see the miraculous but if you turn against me, I will shut you down and I will take you out of that promised land. Well, that's what happened, right? God called it a long time ago. All right, let's pick up the story. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. First verse answers the question of who wrote it. The words of Nehemiah. The son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that's the capital of the known world at the time. That Hanani, one of my brothers, maybe his own brother or a Jew, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped all the turmoil, who had survived when we all got kicked out of our land, the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, oh man, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile, they are in great trouble and shame. For the wall of Jerusalem, nope, it's broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. Well, that's terrible news. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pause right there. Nehemiah really cared. Now, I don't know why it was a shock to him what happened. If he cared beforehand, wouldn't he know what was going on? But for some reason, that day, his heart broke. 
And we know it because he said, and I mourned and I fasted for days on end. I don't know how many of us have mourned and fasted for days on end. We may have fasted for days on end. We have mourned for days on end. But like in one package? I mean, he's just tore up. Why? In my opinion, it's because his heart was broken because God's heart was broken. Right? I think he took on the weight that was on God's shoulders in that moment. Let's make this real personal. If we're going to build God's way, we need to care about what he cares about. Right? Because here's the thing. Do God's wounds hurt your heart? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? When you consider your personal vision for your life, are you considering what he built you to do for the greater kingdom? Are you able to see beyond yourself? Are you able to see that he put you here for the advancement of his agenda? Do you even know what that is? Because the best way to know what God really wants is to read his word. Let's pick it up in verse five. And I said, oh Lord God of heaven, that means he started to pray. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer to a king is a quasi-bodyguard. You drink the wine and taste the food before he has it, so in case somebody's trying to assassinate him, you die, he doesn't. Right? Awesome. That's a great job. But because you're around him, he has to trust you with his life. To trust you with his life means that you end up becoming a practical admin and assistant to the king. Very few people had any access to the king. Nehemiah had access to him almost every day. He had what 99.9% .9 of the entire kingdom did not have, the ear of the king. You think that was an accident? Hmm. What was his first decision to do when he learned that there was a problem? First thing he did, pray. That's what he did. I don't know what you and I do when we first have a problem, but he prayed. 
Why? Because God's the answer. Let's make it personal. If we're going to build the way God wants us to build, then we need to listen to him. And that means we read the word and we pray consistently. When we have a challenge, many of us immediately go to a self-help book, or we'll go to a podcast, or we'll go to a radio show, or we'll go to one of our friends. But in is that saying that you don't believe that God has something to say about your particular situation? Or are you saying that in order to dig it out, it's going to take too much time because you don't really know what the word says in the first place? Because uh, I would suggest that if you were honest, you'd rather know what God had to say than your buddy. He's just easier to ask. Does that make sense? So we need to be people of purpose, right? And when Nehemiah prayed, he prayed passionately, Right? So here's how we make this personal. Because, I mean, he did so many healthy things in his prayer. He was like, God, you are good. I know who we are. I'm part of the problem. I mean, he was humble. And there was all these crazy cool things about his prayer. But here's the part that was most important to me. If we're going to build God's way, we need to be men and women who pray. Why? Because God's the only solution. So here's my question for you. Who's going to call the fire down? Who's gonna call the fire down? You see, most of us in this room have really, really good hearts and want what God wants. As a matter of fact, we do a whole bunch of stuff preparing things, right? Well, God, I'm trying to make good uh, connections with my neighbor, and I'm trying to be very honest. I'm trying to raise my kids right, and I'm trying to, and what you're doing is you're building like an altar to the Lord, right? The wood there, and the kindling, and then the, the starter stuff, and you're putting everything on there. But what do you need for it to be successful? You need a fire to ignite, but the, not any fire will do. You need a fire to come ripping out of heaven, because that's the God fire, and that's going to light it up, and boom, it's going to explode. How, who's going to call the fire down? Because the way the fire is going to come is through prayer, so many of us are working hard. As a matter of fact, we're working harder than we should because we're trying to make up for the effort of not praying. There's some things that only God can do and we're trying to do them in our own strength. We might be more successful if we spent more time praying than trying harder. So who's gonna call the fire down? Pick it up in chapter two, verse one. It starts four months later. Intriguing, keep that in your mind. It's four months later. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, meaning up to this point. I don't know how long he worked there. Verse two, and the king said to me, why is your face sad? I can see you're not sick. Clearly, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Just let that soak in for a second. And then I was very much afraid. Why was he so afraid? Here we go. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what are you asking of me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I'm asking that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, and the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, well, how long are you going to be gone? When are you getting back? So it pleased the king to send me when I gave him a time. That went pretty well, right? What was happening during those four months? He hears the news, his heart broken, he goes into prayer, and then four months later, he gets into the conversation. What happened for four months? Here's my guess, because the Bible doesn't say. We have to speculate. Here's my guess. I think it was a lot of wrestling with God. I think it went something like this. God, I'm not an architect. God, I'm not a city planner. You have the wrong dude. I am not a carpenter. I am not a mason. I do not know how to rebuild cities. I'm a cupbearer. I am the smart guy. I put my body on the line as well, but that's like a side job. But really, I'm the guy that tells you kind of what to do. I'm the guy that's trying to give advice. Like, I don't build stuff. You don't want me. You want someone else. But there was a lot of conversations like that. God, you got it wrong. You don't know what you're doing, right? This is impossible. I don't know if I got into that, Lord, but it's totally impossible. I mean, so many other people have tried this and failed. They were better than me. And... Hmm. When, this is just personal for us, when do we do instant obedience and when do we do long-term planning, right? Because here's the thing. I believe in instant obedience. I believe that the Bible calls us that when God says jump, we say how high. But he did not jump instantaneously. He heard the problem. He did not immediately go into it. He went into long-term planning with God. When do you do instant obedience and when do you do long-term planning with God? Well, it depends on the task. If you have the ability in your pocket and it is clear that it is the will of God, you do instant obedience. If there are questions in your mind or resources you do not have, you have to go into long-term planning. That means you cool your jets, you back up, because a lot of times we'll run headlong into something that God goes, you do realize I haven't given you the resources yet, right? Like, this is going to look really stupid when you run into a wall. Right? Because he's like, no, 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 I gave you the vision, but I didn't tell you when. And you just want to run off because it sounds cool. I need you to calm down and listen to me. There's times when that is necessary. But there's other times when he said, hey, I need you to go minister to that person. You immediately click down and go, I have the resources to do that. And I know it's God's will. I need to obey. Does that make sense? Hmm. Here's the other thing that's interesting. He utilized his position for kingdom building, right? He utilized his position for kingdom building, but that was going to come at a significant cost. Why was he so nervous? Because who else in the Bible had access to a king and had to ask a big favor? Esther, right? I mean, Esther was a wife of the king, but she's only like one of them. There's like a ton of them. And he wasn't even hanging out with her very much. And, it, and why is everybody so nervous to talk to the king? Because it was either their husband or it was their boss who they talked to every day. Like, why is this such a big deal? You're only going to know the answer to that if you can grasp one concept. Absolute monarchy. 
See, we have not been raised in this. We don't even know the concept of ancient monarchy, where you have one person with absolute power, and whether you live or die depends on their mood. That kind of stuff is so bizarre. The very idea, everyone's vying and they assume everyone's trying to take them out in their power, so they're suspicious of everybody, and anything that's said, depending on whether they're in a good mood or bad mood, they may just decide you need to go away. And they're told by everybody, you can do anything you want. You can do anything. You think celebrity is messed up. Wait until you have absolute power of life and death over people. That gets really scary. So all these folks that have to go ask this question are already nervous. But what was the question he was asking? Hey, can I rebuild a city of a people group you had to crush before because we rebelled against you? Hey, can I lead and raise up a nation of people that don't like you and don't want you as their leader? That's what they just asked. Like, that's going to go over well? No, that's a terrible idea. Why would you even ask that? Because if he's in a bad mood and happens to feel threatened, and you say, hey, can I go build a fortress? That's not going to sound good. And what do you think everyone around him is going to say? I wouldn't let him do that. I wouldn't let him. There's a reason why you guys had to put him down before, Right? This is a tough question, but here's what's interesting. If we're going to build God's way, we need to use what God's given us. If we're going to build God's way, we need to use what God's given us. Where has God put you strategically for such a time as this? You think where you work is an accident. You think the family you're in is an accident. Hmm. I don't think so. I don't think Nehemiah in his wildest dreams ever thought that he was gonna become the cupbearer to the king, much less one that would then go build a city. So what's going on in the whispers that God has in your spirit? Probably sounds pretty bizarre. But are you willing to use it for the kingdom of God? Or do you wanna say, God, don't take advantage of this. This is the only thing I've got. Mm. Why did the king listen to him? I mean, it's a big ask. Why did he give him time? Did you notice how the conversation came about? As he was like, man, you don't look good today. And he cites out, I've never been sad in the king's presence before. Why wouldn't you be sad? Can't you just be who you are? Not in the ancient monarchy. You better be the best employee at all times, and you better be happy and joyful to do whatever he says. What this means to me is his work ethic was so high that the king trusted whatever came out of his mouth. That's powerful. Because if it wasn't trustworthy, he would have never listened to him. Let me make this real personal. Is it possible that God is spurring people around you that need the gospel but they are so scared to approach you because you're so high drama. Your life is in such chaos, they don't want to come to you anyway. God's trying to get them to talk to you, but it's like, nope, I don't want to go to them. Because before someone will hear the gospel from you, they have to, number one, have trust in you, and number two, see evidence in you. Why in the world would they want to hear about your God if they don't think it makes any difference in your life? 
And the other thing is why in the world would they give you the power over them and you say, hey, can you tell me about your God? That instantly gives you power. Why would they do that if they don't trust you? Do you live a life that allows God to ping someone else and scoot them over to you and ask you about Jesus? That's a key question. Here's another key question. Have you given a strong foundation for the Lord to build on? Now, let me put a caveat here. There are some of us that are new to the faith, and the answer is no. And it's supposed to be no. Why? You go, well, I have a messed up life. God can use that. (laughs) I mean, that's all I got, right? That's what I'm bringing to the table. That is entirely appropriate. But let's say you've been with the Lord for a while. Did you give him something that's solid that he can build off of? And here's how you know. The more times you've said yes to God, the more foundation was laid. And here's the cool thing about laying a foundation. Then building gets exciting. Uh, I got to be very clear. I am not a builder, okay? Like, look at my hands. They are soft and gentle. And they barely have little things for keyboards, right? Little pads. Okay, so it's embarrassing, So if we're going to talk about building, I'll talk about it from a different angle here. I remember in 1998 when Susie and I got to watch our first house be built, which was basically just a track home that looked exactly like the other fourth house down the road, right? But I remember it going up. The beginning of the building process is boring. Yeah? I mean, it's kind of like, oh, they're moving dirt. You don't want to take a picture of that. Then you got a picture of dirt. And then they're like, oh, we're laying stuff underneath there where we're going to lay down the foundation. Even when they lay the pad, still don't want to take a picture of that. It looks stupid. And so all the building at the beginning to lay the foundation is so mundane and so not cool. But once they start putting stuff up on it and it starts taking shape, you're like, this is awesome. Okay, same thing in our lives. When we're starting from scratch, there's a lot of deep stuff the Lord has to do, and it's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be fancy. As a matter of fact, you're going to go, is he doing anything with me? Oh, he's doing all the underground work. And the more and more you say yes to him, the more and more you say yes to him, all of a sudden he starts building that foundation, and then all of a sudden it starts picking up speed. The more you say yes to God, if you give him a foundation, building goes faster. And that's when the exciting part happens. I just want to encourage you. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the Jordan River, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And I need a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses, of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked for. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. I gave him the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Let's pause. He's in the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's in Susa, the capital of the known world. How far is it to get back to Jerusalem? Eight to 900 miles. That's not like, hey, I'm going to jog over there. I'll be right back, right? I'm going to work remotely on my laptop. 
he had to go, and when you go, it's super far. So when they were first uh, exiled, they went to Babylon, and then the, the kingdom spread out and all that stuff. But this journey, if you did it on foot, it's four months. Well, he's on horseback, so maybe it's a little faster than that, but this is really far away, right? And what's intriguing about this is that he now has to ask the king for more stuff. So first he was nervous about asking in the, in the first place. Wouldn't you be tempted to just call it? Like, ah, I kept my head today. Woo, we're gonna call that a win and then just trying to make it up. But he knew full well that what he was gonna do, it doesn't really matter if he get the authorization but doesn't have anything to do or he can't even get there. So he has to ask him for materials. He has to ask him for protection to get over there and get the job done. He pushed through because he knew it was right. And then he ends up doing something that no one else was able to do. You're going to find out he rebuilds the wall in record time. So uh, let me recount this. Instead of death, he got help. Instead of a short time, you find out the king lets him be there for 12 years. Instead of just letters of safe passage, he gets armed bodyguards. Okay, he's about to see more radical success than anyone else. What is different about Nehemiah? One word, anointing. Anointing. Because the hand of God was upon him. It wasn't because he was smarter. It wasn't because he was better. It was because God said so. If we are going to build God's way, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is where you go, well, how do I get the anointing of the Holy Spirit? And I go, I don't know. But you better go figure it out. Right? You can ask him for it. And that's what we're going to do at the end of the service. I mean, you can lean into him. You can spend time with him. Right? But we're talking about fire falling. We're talking about an anointing where God's hand is on you. And when you touch stuff, it moves. Right? I mean, we're talking about that everybody tries a lot, but when God is on you and he's pushing the rock, that's a whole different ballgame. I think that's the difference. Are you anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit? Fair question. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I put a, and I, and a, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by the night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials didn't even know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Pause. Three-day reconnaissance journey. Does it kind of weird? There's like a weird sneaky element to it, right? 
And it makes one sense where when you say, well, I don't want the enemy to know, so I'm going to go at night and all this stuff. But he said, I didn't tell anybody, even the people that are going to have to do the work with me. Like I went in incognito, didn't say anything. Why be so sneaky? Here's my guess. Because he wanted to talk with God before he talked with biased people. He needed time to look at it and go, God, is this really what you want me to do? Because once you say go, I'm going to make this happen. Because the minute I talk to those people, they're going to have a million reasons why we shouldn't do this. The minute I talk to those people, it's hesitations. The minute I talk to them, there's problems. The minute I talk to them, they're going to tell me that it's impossible. I already know it's impossible. So I'm going to talk with you real quick. You're sure this is what you want? If we're going to build God's way, we need to be men and women of action and determination more than we are talkers. Don't talk about what you'll become as much as show what you'll become. There's a lot of us that get fired up and we start talking and we don't follow through. Why was he so thorough? I mean, we, we got to read through and then he was at the dung gate, which how cool to have your house right next to the dung gate. That's awesome. I'd rather be at the dragon gate. I did read that part. I was like, that's cool. I don't want to be at the dung gate. Why, why, why so thorough? Because I believe that before he wanted to get someone on board, he wanted to know the size of the job. Because you can't lead people if you don't know where you're going. Does that make sense? If we're going to build God's way, we need to think through the process of what we're becoming. Why? Because a half-formed life is more confusing than inspirational. What do I mean? Hey, man, I know that person, my neighbor, they so love God, but dang, they're chaotic. Man, I love, my buddy at work, he is, so loves God, but he is a jerk to his wife. Man, that person, that, that girl that I know from the coffee shop, man, she loves God. But she is always mouthing off about some weird stuff. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's confusing to people. Okay, you're telling me that you love God and I think I want God, but you're kind of freaking me out. A half-formed life when we just go, oh, I'm good enough. Hey, you got a bunch of dysfunction. Oh, I'm cool with it. It's just confusing to people. They don't know what to do with it. So we have to keep pressing forward to begin to iron some of those pieces out. You may be content with stopping halfway, but the Lord is not. And he'll keep agitating you till you keep moving. Make sense? Yeah. And then the last thing I want to highlight on that piece is do you realize Nehemiah was doing just fine on his own? He had a great job, made bank, and everything was fine. He did not need to be doing this. And there are some of us that are going, you know what, Pastor, you're talking about building our lives. To be honest with you, I'm fine. Here's my recommendation to you. It's the first law of Newton's motion. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. An object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by an external force. What do I mean? If you're in a rut, you're probably going to stay in a rut until God moves you out.
Pick it up at verse 17. Then I said to them, he's now telling his team, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also about the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, yeah, let's rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. Well, this is awesome. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? What are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to him, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and we will build. But you have no portion, no right, and no claim in Jerusalem. Man, he's on fire. He just got everybody pumped up and then opposition came and he was like, I rebuke you. You know what I mean? He just shut him down, right? You got nothing here. How did he inspire everybody? Well, he had an exciting plan, right? We're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He had an exciting God and you do realize God has done radical miracles already. So that gives me number three, an incredible track record. We can do this. And everyone's like, yeah, we can, right? Next week, we're going to find out that every time you do something great, it draws opposition. Hmm. But I'll tell you this, if we're going to build God's way, we need to remain hopeful and encouraged. It is really hard to build when you're down. Do you have people around you that build you up? You've got to ask yourself that question. And here's the other thing. He was so ferocious. To him, victory was a lock. Why? Because God started it, and if God started it, God will finish it. This is the same reason why when I talk to you about building your lives, to me it's a lock. Because I know it is God's will for you, and he'll empower you to do it. The only question is motivation. Yeah? I believe there's more for us. So, I'm going to do something in this series that I don't normally do. I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, I never tell you what to do, right? I'm always like, well, you could. But in this one, we're talking about building a certain way. So here's what we're going to do as a family. If we're going to build God's way, we need to focus on three practices as a church over the next seven weeks. I want you to write these down. Number one, daily Bible reading. I need you to read the Bible every day. Now, in order to help you do that, we have a daily Bible reading plan that we will text you. Every day, we'll give you what we're reading for the day. How do you get that text? Well, we're going to put it on the screen, but I need you to write this number down. If you text the word BUILD to this long, odd number, it will work. There you go. You ready? 855-475-8095. 855-475-8095. If you text BUILD to that number, we're kicking it off on Monday, and Monday, moving forward, it will give you the daily Bible reading text to you every day, because we're going to do this as a family. Number two, write this down, a daily gratitude practice. A daily gratitude practice. We have got to be thankful people. We've got to be like, God, you gave me a little victory. I'm going to celebrate it. This is not positive thinking. This is remembering God. Does that make sense? And then number three, 
weekly church attendance. Whether you're in the building or you're online, ultimately, either one is great. Just make sure that you're connected to your family, connected to your spiritual family during these next seven weeks as we are building together. Because here's the deal. If we're gonna build God's way, we gotta decide that it's worth the effort. Amen? Amen. So here's how we're gonna finish out. I'm gonna have you stand. Can you stand with me as we close out? I'm gonna pray that the fire of the Holy Spirit would ignite in you. Amen? That's what we need. We need more of him and less of us. So that's what we're gonna pray for. We're gonna pray right here that he would ignite a fire, a little spark that's gonna turn into a bonfire and that you will begin to have a new motivation, a new direction that you might become who Jesus designed you to be. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come to you in humility, throwing the doors open wide and saying, would you come to us, rise up in us, anoint us, wash us, identify through baptism with us? Would you move in our spirits in such a significant way that you would ignite a fire that that fire would be consistently burning as a reminder that you are doing something extraordinary. God, we pray that it would be there when we wake up at night, that it would be there when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed, that it would be there in the middle of the day, that it would be there in our workplace, there in our schoolhouse, there wherever we're at, there in our homes, when we're eating dinner or when we're not. Lord, that there would be a fire burning in our spirit, that at all times, Holy Spirit, that you would be present and ready to move mountains, that you would begin to do signs and wonders through our lives, that you would begin to move in our prayers and through our hands and our hearts. God, we are praying that you would allow your Holy Spirit to explode in this church and in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you to take your own control because we don't know what we're building yet, but you do. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.